Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we got an end to a story we had been following for quite some time. That was the story of the sex cult Nexium. The leader, Keith Raniere, had been found guilty on all charges related to the sex cult he started under the guise of a self-help group. Among the charges he was found guilty of were forced labor conspiracy, sex trafficking, and child porn charges. We spoke to Pilar Melendez. She's a reporter for the Daily Beast. She was in the courtroom for the verdict and joined us for how it all went down. The verdict came down a little less than five hours after the jury began deliberating, which is pretty phenomenal because there was seven counts that he was being accused of, and each count had about numerous subparts in, in between. So they really decided quickly that he was going to be convicted of all of these. But as the foreman was reading all of the guilty pleas that the jury found, Keith Rainier was staring directly at the judge, completely emotionless, I would say he was a little bit redder than normal, but he <laughs> did not look into the rest of the people in the courtroom at all. He was staring directly at the judge, did not make any movement, any facial expression. Meanwhile, everyone in the courtroom, including some of the prosecutors, were very emotional. There was a bunch of former Nexium members that were watching the verdict being read that were crying hysterically. Some notable members, Mark Vicente, who testified and was also a top recruiter for Nexium, he started crying as the verdict started being read. Catherine Oxenberg, who is the Dynasty star and also her daughter India, was a DOS slave and a former Nexium member. She was inside the courtroom after when the verdict was being read. Barbara Boucher, who was a former girlfriend of Keith Rainier and a former Mexican member, she broke down, had to hold the edge of one of the pews, started crying. So it was a very emotional scene inside the courtroom. But again, Keith Rainier did not make one movement. Yeah, I mean, this was a six-week trial, and we got a lot of insight into what was going on. There was blackmail. People were being branded with his initials. He kept them in line. Uh, we heard the last time you were on with us when they finally went down to his compound and busted him and he tried to hide in another room and forced some of the other women to try to cover for him. You mentioned mm -hmm. that there was some action that happened outside of the courtroom after this. What, what happened there? The verdict was read in about five to 10 minutes. The judge quickly took the jury out so we could go outside and break the news. A lot of the Nexium members were really emotional, crying right outside. They were hugging each other. They were saying that Keith Rainier's done and calling him an asshole. And towards the end of the mass exodus outside the courtroom, Keith Rainier's lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, walked outside and actually approached Barbara Boucher, who again is a former Nexium member and one of Keith Rainier's ex-girlfriends, and congratulated her and said, I hope this helps. Wow. And she started crying and said, thank you so much. And if you have time, I would love to talk to you. And Mark Agnifilo said, with the government's permission, he would love to speak to her and hear more about what she went through, which is a pretty powerful exchange. One, because Mark Agnifilo, being his defense attorney, basically admitted during the closing arguments that Keith Raniere is a repulsive man. He said those exact words that Keith Raniere was disgusting. I was surprised by that. Yeah. It was a weird closing argument because it was basically admitting that his client is gross, but it was a smart closing argument because 
after six weeks, truly relentlessly lurid testimony, he couldn't deny that Keith Raniere was doing weird stuff in upstate New York. He had to be honest with the jury. And I think that him approaching Barbara Boucher at the end and congratulating her and saying, I hope this helps, I think is just him recognizing that regardless if he was defending Keith Raniere, regardless if they both maintain his innocence, he was doing some weird stuff in upstate New York. Yeah. Now, so this whole group, this Nexium group, it was started in the 90s. It was supposed to be a self-help thing. It got a lot of high-profile people involved. Allison Mack from the WB series Smallville was one of the most notable people. Claire Bronfman, who was the heiress to the Seagram's yeah. fortune, helped finance a lot of the activities here. And in the end, a lot of this surrounded the news of this uh, alleged sex cult. It was called DOS, where Allison Mack herself would recruit people to be Rainier's sex slaves, things like that. Tell us some of the highlights that we found out throughout this trial. We've been covering this on the podcast, but there's just so much that came out during the the testimony. It was truly incredible. I feel like every day of testimony was something that A, you've never heard about before, or B, you couldn't even conceive what was happening. Not too far. I mean, I live in New York City, and this only happened a couple of hours away, which is insane to think about. But some major highlights, three former DOS slaves testified. Each had a similar story. They were recruited by a female Nexium member when they were in a point of feeling really low. A lot of them described they were very overwhelmed and stressed out when they were approached. They were told that it was a women's empowerment group. Two of the three of them, one notably being Nicole, who was the subject of the sex trafficking charge that Keith Raniere was convicted of. She described a very horrible scene where Keith Raniere asked her if she trusted him and she felt like she had to say yes, even though she testified that she really didn't. And he took her into a room, tied her on top of a table, tied her hands and legs with a cloth and walked around her commenting while somebody went down on her. She's also described that she was blindfolded with two blindfolds, one so tight that it made her eyes hurt and she didn't know who was in the other room. Later, she found out through prosecutors that it was Camilla who Keith Raniere got convicted of having underage sex with her. He was convicted of the child pornography charge, but we found out during the trial that Camilla was being manipulated. She had to go down on the slave that testified. She started next game at the age of 15. It was just, there's just a lot. Yeah. Ranieri returns to court on September 25th for sentencing. How much time is he facing? He's facing 20 years to life. I was talking to Mark Agnifilo, who is Keith Ranieri's attorney. He told me that they are, wouldn't be surprised if the maximum sentence was granted. The judge seems pretty adamant about harsh sentences in terms of Nexium and is offering no leniencies to Keith Ranier and any of his former co-defendants, including Allison Mack, who's supposed to be sentenced in September as well. So we'll see. Pilar Melendez, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. On the world stage, tensions with Iran continue to remain high. President Trump warned that Iran made a very big mistake after the Iranian Revolutionary Guard shot down an American RQ-4 Global Hawk surveillance drone. Iran maintains that the drone crossed their airspace, but the U.S. says that is just not true. We spoke to Brian Bender, who's a defense editor at Politico, for more on the drone shootdown. 
This is a very provocative act. It's a drone. There's no pilot in it. But it seems like the Iranians are inching up to the red line, if you will, to see how far they can push the United States. This comes to days after these two oil tankers were mined and damaged in the Gulf of Oman, not too far away. And so I think there's real concern that the Iranians feel like they have a free hand here. And the question is, at what point do they do something that really does force the United States to retaliate? The president also said that he found it hard to believe that this was intentional. It might have been somebody who was loose and stupid or just some type of offhand order, some type of mistake. The distinction in this, and even when Lieutenant General Joseph Guastella was making statements about this, he pinned this on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran. They kind of operate separate from the Iranian military. They get separate orders. They have their own ground, air, and naval divisions. They control the ballistic missile program for Iran. Who are these guys? Who is this group? Well, the IRGC basically answers directly to the Ayatollah. What the president is suggesting, and maybe he has real hard and fast information about some rogue faction or somebody operating without orders from the top, but he's giving voice to this idea that when you talk about Iran, quote unquote, you have to think about which Iran you're talking about, because there's the Iranian government, president, the foreign minister that sort of speak for the government, but then there's the religious leader, the Ayatollah, who sort of sits above it all and has the IRGC as his own personal Army, Navy, Air Force, paramilitary elite unit that operates not just in Iran, but all over the region. And the IRGC is operating in Iraq, Yemen, Syria, other places. But I think what's interesting to me is that the president's comments demonstrate the conflict, I think, in his own mind. And by that, I mean, clearly the Iranians are poking the bear, trying to see how far they can push us. The president clearly understands that we need to do something about it. We can't just have the Iranians blowing up oil tankers, risking economic lifelines, shooting down our aircraft. But at the same time, this is a president who ran on extricating our military from the Middle East in these endless wars. In fact, he repeated that the other day. So I think he's very reluctant to get into a shooting war and wants to find another way out. But he also has advisors that are pressuring him, his national security advisor, the secretary of state, who believe that we need to be tougher on Iran. And so he's got to balance the devils and the angels on his shoulders. He even answered questions to that because reporters were asking him if his advisors were pushing him toward war. And he said, no, they're not smart enough to answer that in the right way. But you're right. John Bolton has a history of being hawkish on Iran. The same thing with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. They want to exude this position of of strength and force. But even a lot of lawmakers, Senator Lindsey Graham, very forceful saying, hey, if they want something, they're going to get it and they're going to lose. There's a lot. Many lawmakers are kind of of that same thing. We have to be tough in Iran. But even Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she doesn't think the president wants a war with Iran and the American people have no appetite for that either. We still have a Iraq war hangover. We know how that thing turned out, and I think there's a deep reluctance in both parties. What's interesting is there are hawks in the president's own party, for sure, but they're kind of a minority these days. I mean, even Republicans are very wary about another open-ended military engagement in the Middle East. I mean, the Iran war, if it came to that, would make Iraq look like a sideshow. And so I don't think anybody on either side, the Iranians, the Americans, really want a major conflict here. But 
The bigger worry is that the more this goes on, the more the risk goes up that there could be a miscalculation, that things could spin out of control. If Iran shot down a surveillance plane with a crew of 10 Americans in it, we'd be hard-pressed not to do something dramatic in retaliation. And then what does Iran do after that? I mean, Iran has proxies, militias, terrorist groups all over the region that could wreak havoc. And so I think the administration, the president is trying to find a way to stand firm, not let these activities the Iranians are engaged in slip by, but at the same time, try to minimize getting sucked into a part of the world where we're already, quite frankly, pretty sucked into and are trying to figure out a way out, whether it's in Syria, Iraq, you name it. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. A quick update to that story. Top administration officials and lawmakers left the White House after more than an hour long classified briefing about the downing of that American surveillance drone. And it was agreed that measured responses were going to be taken. Among others that were in that meeting were CIA Director Gina Haspel, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joseph Dunford, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan, who's on his way out, and Army Secretary Mark Esper. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, told Fox News that they had a good briefing and that the Trump administration would engage in a measured response. So we'll have to wait to see exactly what happens there. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for her part, issued a statement uh, calling for calm, saying we need to do everything in our power to de-escalate. So the situation will be ongoing and we'll see what these responses are like. There was also some movement this week on the military leadership. Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan is out and will withdraw from the nomination process to be the permanent defense secretary. It was reported by USA Today that the FBI is examining a 2010 domestic fight between Shanahan and his former wife. Accounts differ as to who the aggressor was, but in the end, his wife was arrested for domestic violence. Army Secretary Mark Esper will take over for Shanahan. And we spoke to Tom Vandenbroek, Pentagon correspondent for USA Today, for all the details. We have done a lot of reporting on this and talked to a bunch of folks surrounding Shanahan, including his ex-wife and his children about this. And they were looking in particular at an incident from 2010 in which the two of them had been out at a friend's house for dinner and had been drinking, came home, and an argument broke out and they started fighting. She alleges that Shanahan and she were wrestling over the a briefcase, uh, the contents of which we don't know, and right. we don't know why they were wrestling over it, but that he punched her in an attempt to wrest the briefcase from her. He maintains that he didn't hit her, he never laid a hand on her, and that she struck him 10 to 20 times. The police arrived and arrested her, but later dropped charges. Now, the FBI wanted to revisit this case because of unresolved questions about who may have been at fault for for the fight itself and whether or not Shanahan had punched her. The thing with this is it happened nine years ago, so there's a lot of it already out there. We have a 911 call where his wife right. called and, and, you know, in the call, she's saying that he punched me several times. He's trying to punch me. He's trying to intimidate me all of these types of things. But what ended up happening while there was differing accounts, they both said that each other was hitting the other one. When the police got there and saw what was happening, she ended up being arrested and charged with domestic violence in that case, just because of what the evidence at the time was showing. Tell us a little bit about that. He had a slightly bloody nose and he had a cut on his hand. 
she maintained that he had struck her in the stomach, but had no evidence of being of being struck. I mean, she had no evident bruisings. And she had blood on her arms that the police believed was consistent with her taking swings at him. So they arrested and charged her with it. But again, due to lack of proof, prosecutors dropped that case. Really, what it comes down to is whom you believe in this case, because there were only two witnesses to it, he and she. And she has some credibility problems in that she acknowledges having some mental illness. And they were both, according to the police, drunk at the time of this fight. The other twist in that, though, was that their 15-year-old son at the time was also present, and he signed some type of statement for his mother's lawyer at the time, recounting that there was a physical struggle. And although he didn't see either parent strike the other, later he recanted that. He said that he was coerced by his mother at the time. He was just following what his mother said to do, and that's why he submitted this letter. Right, and that was some of the reporting that we got just this weekend from them in talking to the son who said that he had been the victim of you know verbal and physical abuse from his mother and that she had forced him to sign this declaration that contained allegations that he came to her aid because he said that Shanahan was, was striking his wife, but he wanted to recant that. So we talked to him and um, discussed some of the issues with him, and he said that he felt coerced into making that statement. I mean, it is a very unfortunate situation, what was going on. These charges and countercharges, they were all part of this legal fight that they were having it, that lasted more than six years. I mean, I can't imagine him wanting to relive this all over again through a confirmation process, which we know can get contentious also now. So that's partly why he said that he was withdrawing his nomination. He said he didn't want to have his kids relive through this again, and that's why he got out. That's what he's saying. It's true. I mean, it's interesting, though, and we're hearing it from members of the Senate Armed Services Committee as to why this didn't come up the first time he went through a confirmation hearing, because he had a hearing two years ago to be the deputy secretary. And there are questions now about why this information wasn't available at the time to senators, and they're very concerned about it. We've got we talked to Elizabeth Warren. She's asking for an investigation as to why they didn't know about this two years ago. Right. And President Trump even said he just learned about it yesterday. Well, this is stuff that's been in the public domain for 10 years almost. I mean, since these, we based all of our reporting on documentation and 911 call, all of that stuff was available to people who were vetting Shanahan's background. So they could have seen this nine years ago or certainly two years ago when he was nominated to be deputy defense secretary. Right. I think some of the stuff that I had seen was uh, since it was a lesser post, maybe they didn't just pay attention, close enough attention to it. I mean, who knows really on that front. But the other worry, fear of his credibility on this issue, the military has struggled for a long time now with violence against women. And, you know, whether she was charged or not when the thing happened initially, would it damage his credibility on the issue and handling this when he would take over the post and, and, and you know, oversee so many military personnel? Certainly. You hear that from advocates and from former senior officials at the Pentagon that if there's a credible allegation of abuse of women, he would be hard-pressed, if not disqualified, from being able to lead the efforts to combat domestic abuse, which the military has a significant problem with, at least 8,000 cases per year, and this out-of-control problem that they seem to have, they don't seem to have, they do have, with sexual assault in the ranks. So those questions would certainly have come up at the hearing. We know that from some of the senators that we spoke to.
Army Secretary Mark Esper will take over as Acting Defense Secretary. Do we know when this change will happen? Well, it's unclear right now. There's going to be some kind of a transition period where Shanahan stays on until they can make the uh, transition official to Esper, who will be on an acting basis too. But President Trump has indicated that he's going to put forward Esper for Esper's nomination to be the permanent defense secretary. Tom Vandenbroek, Pentagon correspondent at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Oscar. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.